Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Prime Directive episode. Yay! There's nothing I love more than trying to discuss why I hate the Prime Directive to a bunch of Star Trek fans. That is the greatest joy in my life. I... Let's talk about Judson Scott really quick. I just wanted to bring him up. He's the gentleman who plays Sobe, uh, and he's the guy who also played Joachim, or Joachim, depending on how you pronounce it, over in Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. He's also a Romulan later on uh, in Voyager and Message of a Bottle. I just, I, I just felt like bringing that up because his character probably has the biggest continuity issues in this episode. Now, I've tried digging into this, as I always do, actually, and I haven't been able to find anything more concrete as to why there's stuff on my glasses and or on my eyes and why it is that there's continuity issues in this episode. Now, you might be like, what are you talking about? Well, I'm not the only one who noticed this. Uh, actors and the director, who was actually, the, this is his only directing job ever on Star Trek, uh, looked at this episode and said, well, hang on, in the last scene I was acting like this, so why am I acting like this in this coming scene? And Judson Scott is one of the biggest people who brought up that kind of a question in his role as Sobe. And I have to actually agree. Uh, there's several bits where he just kind of flip-flops, like someone just has a toggle of, I'm the bad guy, oh wait, I'm trying to think about it this way, kind of a thing. It's just weird. <clears throat> and I do want to make it clear that I put a lot of the blame for that on the actual script. Because this script feels like a good idea that wasn't actually fleshed out well. And I want to talk about that concept just really briefly here. Because it's relatively easier to come up with a good idea. I could do that. And I'm a terrible author, right? I imagine most of you guys out there, not that you're terrible authors, but you can also come up with a good idea for a script. But actually putting pen to paper, making good pacing, making good act structure making good character moments, making the dialogue sound like actual dialogue rather than people reading from a script. All of that functionality of making it work into an actual episode is harder than it sounds and harder than it looks and is the kind of thing that takes people who you know, know their craft and are experienced with it or happen to be particularly skilled at the idea, right? So it's not like I'm saying it's easy. But it's very clear that whoever's making this episode wanted to do a drugs episode and had no idea how to actually do that. Because there's a lot of real issues with the plot. One of the other things that I noticed, and this, whether this works for you or not is up to you, is the star. They frequently use the star as a plot point. The only reason we're not sure if the play got on board or not is because the, the inter interferometricsness. I know that's not what they call it. The interference from the star. Um, why can't we just beam them aboard because of the star? Well, why can't we tractor them aboard? It's because of the star. Uh, why are we having trouble beaming this? Well, because of the star. Are we sure about our scanners? No, because of the star, right? It just kept coming up over and over and over. And yet, apparently this star acts like this semi-normally. Like they even mention a point at one point that maybe the reason these people have these electric mutant powers is because of the fact that their star is like this. It's even mentioned, although it's never stated outright, that these people, both of these people, the Bakarians and the Onarans or whatever, uh, live in system. It's the same system. This is, a, this is two separate sentient sapient species who developed in one system who haven't actually spread out from beyond that system, who probably don't even actually have faster-than-light drive. 
That would, of course, make sense, since one of the points is that this is a Prime Directive episode, and, you know, pre-warp civilizations is literally the phrase that used to be used to describe how the PD was utilized, you know, who, who it was targeted towards. And yet this thing is such a completely ordinary thing. It's, it's damaging and making it so that the Enterprise is barely functioning. And yet these people have had this space travel deal for two centuries. Oh, but also, to even add to this mix of isn't quite thought out, they don't know how to repair their own ships. They don't know how to build new ones, apparently, because everyone acts as if the lack of the new coils for their ships is going to mean no more shipments ever. Which also brings up another interesting point. One of the things they mention is that the Anarans are exceptionally technologically advanced, or at least were exceptionally technologically advanced. One of the things that's mentioned is that the Anarans are very industrious. They produce all of the goods. They don't go into specifics, but, you know, they mentioned, the Bakarians mentioned that they have no other industry at all. No textile industry, no machinery industry, no food industry, right? They rely solely on their imports through this drug, which is a little bit ridiculous, but I'll talk about that more later. Why is this relevant? That means that things like, oh, I don't know, engineering, as in structural engineering, space engineering, you know, ships, would be the the field of expertise for the Anarans, the guys who actually own the ships. And yet, they don't know how to run their own ship. It's actually a weird scene towards the beginning of the episode where they have this big, tense thing. Oh, my God, we need to go and save the ship. And you can hear the calm in the background. Oh, God, no, help us, please, help us. And then we cut to them actually reaching the ship, and there's like five minutes of an Abbott and Costello episode as they're just kind of like, oh... Yeah. We need a what? A new coil. Okay. A line of... How do you do that? There's no tension. There's actually no music playing for this section, too, which is funny, because there's several no-music sequences throughout the course of this episode. Laurie and Plug. You get my point. I'm not going to go through every single point like that, but there are several connecting points in the construction of this episode that don't really line up. And you can just kind of tell that the person or people involved in writing the script didn't think it through. That's all I really have to say about that point. Now, uh, I also have to say the teaser for this episode, to rewind just a second, is really weird. They do some really good stuff with the star. They emphasize that this is cool, you know, that they are actually exploring a star which is undergoing some unprecedented magnetic fluctuations or whatever, and that it's very dangerous. And I like both of those points. Something that Star Trek doesn't emphasize all that often is how dangerous and awesome space exploration really is. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. Star Trek doesn't really cover that point all that often. And of course, you know... uh, They don't even really science at the star. Maybe they had to get closer for that. I don't know. But I do like the whole, you know, oh my gosh, ship being destroyed. Although uh, it's worth noting that I find myself wondering exactly how poorly grounded the ship is that x-rays are causing electrical discharges on consoles way, way further away. Like, Like the sensors are out here, right, on the ship. And then they go to the sensor banks. And then there's like the computer that gets that and then probably another computer, and then the console, like, like all the way through that. Whatever. <clears throat> so, 
Uh, I already mentioned how strangely jocular and just bizarre the tone is of the we need to save the druggies uh, thing. And I'm just going to call them the druggies from now on. It's easier than saying Onarans. And they're like, oh, God, what are we going to do? And it's even funnier because in the middle of this very tepid, casually calm scene, Worf mentions the ship is now breaking up and they're all going to die. And it's just like, okay, maybe that was the point? I'm not really sure. But I know it was the point. The fact that they wanted to kind of showcase something they were doing with the transporters. Now that brings me to another point. They mentioned that they will work, you know, conjoin the transporters together to have basically more beaming power. They also mentioned how she will use multiple of her own transporters to increase the power. Now, there are ways that could make sense, but the, and I just wanted to share, the way my mind immediately leapt to doesn't actually make sense unless the transporters kill you every time they beam you. Now, I know that's something that's been debated for literally years in Star Trek, and let me make it very clear that I do not believe that the transporters beam you every time they kill you. Obviously, the creators never thought that, too. That's 100% certain. But I bring this up because if the transporters do, in fact, kill you, it would make sense that multiple transporters would have a higher chance of success of beaming you. Because what happens then is each transporter is just trying to scan, think of it as multiple photocopiers, and each one's not working quite right. So you get one partial copy, a second partial copy, and a third partial copy. If you layer all three of these on top of each other, you have a higher chance of having one complete picture of whatever it is you're trying to copy, hence a higher chance of getting a cohesive signal, a cohesive copy, through the system. Now, boosting the scanning power would make a degree of sense if each transporter, like each literal transporter unit, had its own specific scanner for transporting. I'm not actually 100% sure if that's how that works. I do kind of like the idea of deliberately cooperating with uh, the, the transport on the other ship, though. That's something that's actually never really been done before prior to now. And so it was a nice little way to once again show how the transporters have gotten better since the old days. So, uh, let's talk about the electric fight really quick before I talk about trade. So in the electric fight, the guy's like, and the other guy's like, and then they're like, and then they're like, it's a reasonably cool effect, and it's kind of a neat little concept, and it actually comes up later on, so that's actually kind of cool. That's not what I want to bring up. What I want to bring up is Langdor, Landor? I wrote down her name. Yeah, Langor, apparently. Haha, ha, language. Uh, Langor, the woman, just wins. I found that kind of interesting in its own right, because you've got this full-on... And she just grabs the guy like, nope. That's also interesting to me, because if you'll notice, she is clearly the leader of this expedition. The guy played by Judson Scott, Sobe, the guy I mentioned the issues with earlier, he's kind of a moron the whole episode, even ignoring the obvious continuity issues that I already mentioned. She's the one who, is, who actually seems to have an understanding of consumer trust, trade valuation, and other basic concepts of maintaining a mercantile relationship. So it makes sense in a weird way for me that the leader would be stronger, and they're literally stronger, and therefore capable of just, no. However, if we're being 100% honest with ourselves, this is a show made in the 80s, so this was probably just an attempt to have a woman fight without having to go with, over the line of what, how do we do a woman fight. 
I know that sounds like a weird thing, and I don't really want to get into this topic right now, but let me just say that when it comes to having a woman fight someone who is not a woman in fiction, on camera, with a real live actress, it's a slippery slope, and pretty much no matter what you do, someone's going to dislike it. If you have it so that he refuses to hit her, well, then people are going to look at that and say, oh, I get it, because she's a woman, you can't hit her, so she's not equal or acceptable, right? Or if you have it so that she automatically wins, it's kind of the opposite in the same manner. Or if you have it so that he does actually fight her and it's an equal fight or whatever, then you have the uncomfortable image of a guy hitting a girl, which many, many people, including myself, I admit, would find uncomfortable. So you can see how it's kind of a no-win situation there. So given that, her just grabbing his arm and winning was probably the best way out of that. <clears throat> so... Man, I guess, uh, I, uh, I'm going to save my big discussions for last. That's my usual approach anyways. Let's just say I have a lot to say about the premise. We'll get back to that. So there's these people who only have three ships, excuse me, two ships. <laughs> I kind of already talked about that and the inconsistency of it. I just wanted to mention that these people who have both people rely on a life-saving trade, or at least they think it's a life-saving trade, have three cargo vessels. Excuse me, two cargo vessels. Really? I mean, what's that old saying? Desperation is the mother of innovation, I believe is how that goes. I mean, God's sakes. There's a reason why in real life wars tend to lead to technological progress. Because it's needed now, and... We don't care about the cost now. <laughs> Anyways. So, they only have the three ships. Whatever. I like the quiet tension of the idea that this plague has gotten on board the ship. Now, that's probably one of the only things the script does that I think is subtle and well presented. And it's funny because it's almost immediately tossed away. But the idea of this evolving plot as we get bits and pieces of the story, and basically the red herring of the plague and its threat to our crew, is a nice little da -da -da way to ramp up the tension while at the same time misdirecting both the audience and the characters. And again, it's not a true misdirection because only by investigating the plague can the characters become aware of the true nature of what's going on. So it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice story construction. The idea of, oh my god, they've been plagued and now they've infected the ship is a great set piece that helps things move forward for the audience and the characters. So good stuff there, good stuff. Um, <clears throat> I do have to say, though, as I've mentioned, uh, there's some issues with the script. One of the things I mentioned over on DS9 is the idea of repetition. Now, we all have issues with this, but when it comes to writing dialogue in specific, you want to try to avoid deliberate and especially direct repetition as much as possible. Now, what I mean by direct repetition is the idea of not just repeating the same idea, I thought I had something written, written down there for this, uh, but the same words, just bam, 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 bam. It kind of gets old after a bit. Like listening to me, for example. I hope not. I hope you guys enjoy listening to these. But the uh, I'm not I'm not fishing for compliments. I'm just being uh, self-conscious. Don't mind me. But one of the things that got very old in this episode is 
It's ours. We paid for it. No, it's not. It's ours. It's ours. We paid for it. No, it's not. It's ours. It's ours. We paid for it. No, it's not. It's ours. It's ours. We paid for it. No, it's not. It's ours. Like, it's just over and over and over and over and over. They just kept repeating those same beats. I should have been keeping track. It is at least five times, I'm pretty sure, that they, they keep hammering. And they don't even have an argument. There's no debate. There's no mediation. There's no quarrel. It's just, uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh. 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 I'll stop doing that. But you get my point, right? They don't actually have any proper discussion about the matter. It's just yes, no, yes, no. The end. And that got very old. I also have to admit that the episode feels very clearly slanted to making us, the viewers, sympathetic towards the Anarians. Excuse me, the druggies. Now, whatever you think of that is up to you. That doesn't bother me in this case, because it's made very clear that these people are pretty much the purest definition of victims. This isn't someone who is in bad circumstance who may have made choice. This isn't someone who went through some hell and then started taking drugs to get over it. No, 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 no. These people have been purely victimized since before they were born. So, I sympathize with these people without you helping me episode. And yet, the episode still goes that extra mile to make them out to be the good guys. Look at Tajan in particular. He's the captain of the uh, the druggies. <clears throat> there's a, there's several scenes actually, but my favorite one is in Sick Bay, where he starts basically ranting at Picard, catches himself. Credit to the actor, catches himself, pauses and says, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, you know, I went over the line. I, I, I'm very shaky. I'm, I'm having trouble concentrating." He is very affable in almost all of his interactions with our crew. And, I feel like pointing out, while he is the one who later takes Riker hostage, he does so out of desperation and fear and a desire to help. And, when Picard confronts him and says, you will not kill him, he relents. Because he isn't a killer. Because he isn't a terrible person. Now, that doesn't excuse taking a hostage in that situation, but you could see how the episode is clearly slanted for us to take his side. To give you a little bit of an idea of what I'm talking about, and I've talked about the concept of slanting in fiction before, immediately after Tijan's scene in, in Sickbay, where he's affable, understandable, relatable, very next thing we see is uh, Langor and Sobi, the two Bakarians, or is it Breckians? God, I don't even remember, to be completely honest with you. Uh, hang on, I'm going to look that up really quick. I was on my notes right here. Nowadays, I've got a new setup going on here. Okay, yes, Sobi, yes, what, what species are you? It is Breckian. Okay, so <clears throat> we've got the two Breckians, and they've got kind of this smug grin on their faces, both of them. And she, I'm not going to do it, but she's literally lounging, just stretched out, casual. He grabs a drink. There we go. They're not actually doing anything wrong, but this is what I mean by slanting. When a fictional work clearly makes it so that the author and the director and the creators involved want you to think in direction A. And again, I find that weird because it's so unnecessary. These guys are the bad guys in basically every way. This is not a symbiotic relationship. This is a purely parasitic relationship. And they are the villains here. Willing knowing. They even, there's even a great scene later on where Crusher and Picard 
basically confront them flat out and manage to deduce the, the truth of the, of the nature of this relationship and the fact that they are well aware of the fact that this is a parasitic relationship and that they've been actively trying to make it worse. These are the bad guys. It's actually pretty black and white. <laughs> Moving on. So, I also have to say one thing I do like very quickly. I do like how Picard trusts Crusher's opinion on the matter like that. Too often in a show, especially Star Trek, someone will come up and say, I think it's such and such. And they'll be treated as a Cassandra truth, which, God, I hate Cassandra truths in fiction. Where she's like, oh, it's this. No, it can't be this. Oh, you're biased. Oh, you're just jealous. Or, oh, you've got emotional... Oh, you were right all along. Sorry, we should have listened to you. That just drives me crazy. But no, Crusher says this, this is drug addiction. And Picard immediately believes her and immediately has Data and everyone else just look into this to try and figure out what the hell's going on. And lo and behold, she was right. The only downside here is, and again, maybe I'm a little biased because I actually grew up in Southern California, but it is really, really obvious that the, what these people are going through is drug withdrawals. And when they have their dosage, that it's, that it's an obvious, clear, you know, junky kind of a situation. Now again, Southern California, seen this before, but it, <laughs> I'm pretty sure just about anyone with any kind of medical experience at all could look at that and be like, yeah, especially considering her scans weren't able to find the virus. However, in the interest of fairness, we are presuming that the Enterprise did finally get its actual medical equipment when they went in for Starbase during uh, 110101. I've, I've, I've kind of had this headcanon for a while that all that crap they were missing that explains away the stupidity of the earlier episodes was fixed when they went back to Starbase in 110101 in order to try and fix it. Because all of a sudden they don't have any problem with their medical equipment. Crusher even flat out admits that she's not 100% sure of her readings thanks to the star output problem. But based on her personal knowledge and experience as a physician, she thinks this is what's going on. So, I already mentioned the ship thing. Oh yeah, then there's the don't do drugs scene. I have read from, from one source, it's the wiki in this case, I've, I've never heard of this anywhere else, that the scene between Wesley and Yar is a reviled scene, is the exact wording. That this is a scene of, that, that, that fans can't stand, because it's a don't do drugs scene. When I rewatched it, it didn't really bother me that much. Yar gives a reasonable account of the situation. Now, Wesley doesn't. Wesley comes across as someone who is a straw man argument. Well, not a straw man, that's the wrong way to put that. But basically, he asks all the right questions in all the right ways in a completely in unnatural, ironically, artificial way that is clearly designed to lead the conversation. But Yar's side of the conversation was fine. Like, she said several things that was like, yeah, okay, I'm with that. You know, it does make you feel good. It does make you feel like you're on top of the world. It doesn't feel artificial, not until it starts running out. I'm not sure why that's about. So please, share with me your thoughts. Uh, do you hate it just because Wesley's in it? I mean, that's I've heard people say that. But I am curious, as a of your guys' honest thoughts. It didn't really bother me that much. It wasn't that well-constructed, but, you know. So then they refused the freighter stuff. <clears throat> Ah, 
let's talk about I, I don't want to do this. I really don't. Let's talk about the Prime Directive. Ugh. Anybody who knows me knows that I am not a huge fan of the application of the Prime Directive. I gotta phrase it that way. Because what I don't like, and this is getting into my real life philosophy, is I don't like laws that aren't questioned or thought out. I don't, I don't like pointing at a rule book and saying this applies in all situations equally 100% of the time. That just does not gel with my own personal philosophy. So the idea of being able to say you never do this is something I automatically disagree with. And in my opinion, too much of Star Trek, and this mostly leans on TNG and Voyager as well as ironically a little bit of Enterprise, tends to use the Prime Directive basically as an excuse to not think. And I am very pro-think. So, now that we've said that, one of the things that irritates me about this episode is the way it approaches the Prime Directive. Now, here's let me explain why, though. Before you all jump down my throats, before you hate me, this situation is actually very complicated. But the episode never addresses that. The situation is something that requires a very precise, careful, measured response. But the episode never addresses that. Instead, Picard's overall stance is, it's the prime directive, and therefore it's right. Beverly Crusher's overall stance is, this is ethically and morally repugnant, and therefore it is wrong. And that's as far as either argument goes, even though there is a lot more that can be said for both sides of this particular issue. Because this is a surprisingly complex issue. This, I'm just going to get into this now, I don't actually need my notes at this point. This is a situation in which we have a near total stagnancy of two separate cultures. Where one culture is totally devoted towards industrial practices when it comes to production of industries to service both themselves to basically they're basically doubling output to put it into very basic terms they have to provide for everything they need and for everything the others need the Breckians by contrast have a society that produces drugs and they mention we have no other industry now on the face of it that sounds very stupid and that's because it is. But if you were to take that thought to a real conclusion, a thought-out, world-building conclusion, think about it if every aspect of a culture's economic infrastructure was designed around this product. You would have lots of people researching it all the time. So we've got that industry. We've got plenty of people devoted towards transporting it, towards storing it towards properly uh, understanding how to uh, disseminate it. We've got marketing studies. We've got testing studies in groups. We've got people who are trying to constantly refine it, both at an agricultural level and at a chemical level, and so forth and so on. So even though this, this script, which is kind of devoid of subtlety, as I've mentioned, probably didn't think about any of this, it is still feasible that this is their primary industry. That doesn't mean it's their only industry. It would be kind of, it's, in fact, I, I actually have an example for you in real life. Tea. Yeah, I know, you guys are expecting me to say oil. And oil is a fair comparison. Um, I've talked before about the idea of an entire economy tilting on the axis of one particular service or product. This has actually been true through a lot of human history. There have been several issues, or, or products and services throughout humankind, where a huge, ridiculous amount of our economy has tilted on one single thing. And thus, the, the effect that that industry has on other industries 
it, it's kind of like an echo reverberation thing, economically speaking. So, the Breckians' industry tilting on the axis of this drug trade makes sense. I mean, I hate to point that out, but that's been a thing in real life in certain countries, too. So, imagine these people and all of the investment and all of the time and effort and work and uh, schooling. Imagine what their education system is like in, in a setting where there's really only one major product that they produce as a culture, Right? You can see how this affects almost every level. And the same applies to the other people, the druggy people, the, the Onarians, right? Or Onarians, I forget which it is. You know, the druggies. Because they, are they have to devote themselves to producing a ridiculous amount of basically everything. Like I said, enough for themselves and enough for their partners. And they need to trade it on a regular basis. Remember, these people do not have faster-than-light tra faster travel. So, you know, in system, that's still a decent trip going one, from one planet to another. They mention they have three ships, which is actually ridiculous and stupid. These people should have hundreds, if not thousands, of cargo ships that literally form a near non-stop spiral, because in real life you don't beeline through a system, you kind of go around the gravity well. But, you know, there they should, they should just be this line, this non-stop trade traffic going between the two people in order to sustain these shared economies. Now, whatever. However, my point is, given this circumstance, even ignoring ethics, even if you toss ethics and morality out the window, this is a complex situation that requires thinking. Not just saying, not my problem, PD, I'm out! You know? Now, Picard's solution is clearly him trying to apply basically the third solution, something Voyager would become unfortunately known for. The idea of, well, you know, I find this repugnant. It is very clear that Picard hates this, that he hates them, and he hates this situation. But he also feels compelled to follow the Prime Directive, even though he didn't do it in justice and won't do it in the future as well. So, he looks at the situation and says, how can I satisfy my sense of right and wrong while still doing it within the rules? Now, for better or for worse, that mindset right there, his set of right or wrong within the rules, within the confine of the rules, that sentence pretty much describes Picard's command style and really distinguishes him from every other captain in the Star Trek series. But at the same time, his solution doesn't actually address the problem. I mean... Ignoring the fact, they all act like this is the end because apparently they just can't do anything. You're telling me they aren't going to be able to get some kind of trade going? That both sides being heavily in, you know, motivated to make this happen aren't going to be able to do something about this? Now, granted, they mentioned 72 hours, right? So that's their time deadline. They've got 72 hours to make this work. Don't you think they're going to be able to do something with that? Especially since they, they have this super highly concentrated drug, which could help parcel them out. So they could add time to that 72 hours, right? This is not a solution, Picard. Now, one other thing I don't want to talk about is the, the, the problem of relativistic ethics. Here's the thing. Um, there a lot can be said about not pushing your own ethical and moral viewpoint onto others. That is a valid thing that can be said. 
that some fictional works, including Star Trek and actually Orville, of all freaking things, have actually addressed and done a decent job of addressing. But this episode does not do that. Picard makes one castaway comment about, you know, we're not here to be the judges of the galaxy or whatever, but it doesn't apply in the same strictest sense in this episode because what is happening is still ethically wrong from the from the alien perspective the breckians still show a clear demonstrable presentation of people who understand that what they are doing is morally and ethically wrong they're simply willing to keep doing it because it benefits them so this is not a case of alien ethics or alien morals this is a case of some drug dealers taking advantage of some junkies. And it is made very clear that that is the case. Now, this is probably, once again, a fault of the script for not really following through on this. But it does make Picard's overall opposition to this, frankly, lackluster at best. This is the kind of thing that I would, I would say needs to be very carefully and precisely discussed. In fact, you remember that time limit I mentioned earlier, the 72 hours? I have a feeling, because this is what I would do as a writer here, I have a feeling that was put in there to put the decision on Picard's shoulders. In other words, normally, this kind of situation, you know, civilization-level exploitation, is the kind of thing you'd probably want to debate amongst the Federation Council, that you want to kick upstairs to people whose job it is to debate these kind of concepts and their long-term industrial and economic and cultural and civilization and moral and ethical quandaries that are attached to this. But with that 72-hour deadline, there's no time. He might be able to get a signal back and then forward and then be able to talk to people about that, but not actually enough to really do anything. The decision would have to be Picard's, and that would make it more of an actual dilemma. Especially if you changed the Breckians so that they don't understand why this is wrong. Present them in a way so that they're not sniveling, usurping, exploitive, blackmailing bastards. Maybe not blackmailing, but, you know, whatever. They kind of are. I mean, they do the whole, eh, we'll give you a little bit thing. But no. Make it so that they legitimately see nothing wrong with this. That in their culture, that in the mindset of their civilization and their people, this type of truly parasitic relationship is completely acceptable. Normal, even. Maybe even make some kind of nature parallel if you really want to go that way. Because there are plenty of parasitic uh, organisms that exist in nature here in real life, right? Then you have a real dilemma. Because now there is no bad guys. There are victims. Because the people being victimized are still being victimized, even if they don't think they are. But there's no bad guys, per se, that you can just hammer down. And you have to decide... Do I impose upon these people? Do I state I cannot allow this injustice to go forward when you're not even entirely certain if it qualifies as one? Right? Now, it's worth noting that that would still have an easy solution. That easy solution being the truth. It actually pisses me off that they just kind of sidestep that solution this entire episode. And I know, they give their reasons for it. It still pisses me off. The victims, the druggies, should be able to make an informed choice on the matter. Because wouldn't that make an interesting dilemma? All the hand-wringing and all the debating and, oh, guys, it's not actually a cure, it's a drug. Yeah, but we feel much better when we're on it. 
please give us a new shipment. We don't need it to live. Or excuse me, we don't need it to survive. We need it to live. We need it to be free, man. You could still make that an issue. But I would say that even with, if you ignore ethics and morality and even if you ignore the, the complexities of the prime directive, these people making an informed choice, having the knowledge and understanding of their circumstances in order to be able to make a choice at all is something that I would consider to be an acceptable outcome to this. But again, that's just basically swept under the rug. Now, I know I'm probably shoving my foot as hard as I can into my mouth here, because I know several people actually really like this episode, specifically because of Picard's solution. And it's worth noting that it does kind of bring a smile to my face to think about those Breckians stuck on a planet full of drug addicts who, within three days, will be fine. And very, very angry. But I just feel like this is an episode that, it's kind of a Voyager episode, you know, it could have been great, but it just sort of falls short. I do hope you've enjoyed me talking about it. And I will be seeing you guys next time.